MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 12 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. I am one of your intrepid hosts. My name is AG, and I am joined by... Andrew Torres, and I am pleased, as always, to be here. As am I, (laughs) and we have a pretty epic episode. (laughs) Yeah, I am very, very excited, but... Before we begin, we'd like to thank our new patrons who went over to patreon.com slash aisle45pod. Um, remember, guys, if you do this, you get all sorts of goodies when you sign up. You get the ability to play against us at Bar Trivia. That's coming up soon. Mm-hmm. So head on over, patreon.com slash aisle45pod. That's this weekend. Yeah. That's this weekend. So if you want to get in on that, you want to toss us a buck, yeah. you can get in on the trivia by this, this Saturday at noon Pacific time. Yep. So... Signing up this week, and our thanks go out to Mark Voorhees, Andrew Fillmore, Mackenzie the Lion, glad that's our first Lion listener, Scott Risley, and Kimberly Richard. Mark Voorhees is a little too close to... <laughs> uh, but also thanks to Marla Kirby, Nick Ward, Profile, which is pretty meta, and Will Horan. Yeah, thank you all for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. It's what makes this possible. You get the uh, ad-free version of the show. You get all of our goodies. You get the ability to talk to us over on the uh, specific Patreon boards, which, you know, we're... We respond to those messages. We respond to those uh, comments and emails. So uh, keep doing that. And uh, and thanks to everyone who has. Mm. Well, first up on the cleanup docket today, <laughs> Matt Gates, 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 Pizza Gates. What I, I don't. There's so many names for this Gates Gate that's happening right now. Um, this, oddly enough, it feels like it's been going on for years, Andrew, but this started after our last episode aired last week. There, I don't think there's a lick about Matt Gates and his potential sex trafficking charges on the last cleanup on aisle 45. Nope. All, all broke after we finished recording. <laughs> so, uh, that's how new this is. So what are you hearing, EJ? So many things. Okay. <laughs> so it first started with the New York Times uh, story that I th- I believe broke Thursday, saying that the Department of Justice is investigating Matt Gates for uh, sex trafficking of a 17-year-old uh, girl that he raped. Because I, I, that would be because the age of consent is 18 in Florida. Yep. I'm saying raped. Um, now that started the whole ball rolling immediately. Uh, immediately, because Matt Gates can't keep his mouth shut, uh, he went on Fox News and said, "I'm being blackmailed." My dad wore a wire. 
uh, and something. I mean, just like what? And then he put out a, t- a series of tweets about his blackmail, basically saying, "Hey, uh, I'm being extorted." Uh, somebody came. Somebody named McGee, John McGee, I guess, came up to my dad, Don Gates, and said. Hey, you gave me $25 million or I'm exposing, you know, uh, this is, you know, this is bad. He didn't actually even give, there wasn't actually any extortion. So (laughs) it's hard for me to tell the story like it was extortion because there wasn't. Then we find out McGee was like, I'm not involved in this. But McGee is a lawyer for Levinson, the Levinson family, who was an FBI agent who, you know, the, the one, the longest standing hostage we have in Iran. Yep. And, um. And then apparently some more of the news became clear where two people approached Don Gates and said, hey, front us $25 million. We'll try to find Levinson. We'll give y'all the credit. So that'll like help keep your son out of legal trouble. Like he'll be a hero. And then, you know, there's a, a reward for finding Levinson of $25 million. We'll be able to reimburse you uh, <laughs> for the money that you put forward. Uh, so it's just, and now there's uh, orgies that are being talked about. We're being talked about Matt Gates showing photos of nude women on the floor of the House of Representatives where he works to other lawmakers. Dana Bash is saying she's getting texts from a bunch of people who work with Matt Gates that just that she can't repeat on the air because they hate him so much. Uh, and uh, there's Ro Khanna's mixed in there. He's all just. All kinds of things, but it all seems to keep boiling back down to a guy named Joel Greenberg and sex trafficking allegations. Yeah, and the connection between Gates and Greenberg is undeniable. I mean, there's there is photographic evidence. There is, uh, you know, there there are are, are mountains of uh, documents, evidence, behavior, support, right? Because Joel Greenberg was the uh, the tax county commissioner uh and uh his he was a huge matt gates patron and matt gates supported his political career so um yeah this is there is a hell of a lot of smoke uh surrounding this that i think you know from which you know mm-hmm. you interpret that however you interpret a lot of smoke uh, roger stone is tied the right wing freak out defense <laughs> is in it, it is in full blown i mean if you are our, our, our friends over at knowledge fight did covered the alex jones episode in which he had on roger stone to discuss the matt gates defense and it was a, a, a 20 minute unhinged alex jones rant which is to say it was alex jones um but talking about like, well, and they're going after him because he's a playboy and, I, you know, he's been to these parties and what, like just the kinds of things that, you know, if you're a prosecutor, he would say, um, uh, Your Honor, I would like permission to put Alex Jones on uh, thinking that he is a witness for the character of the defense. Oh, also, and I, I you know, I'm sorry to interrupt you here, but. Just a p- moments ago, there's a new breaking story. M- Matt Gates has penned his own op-ed. So uh, going on Fox, is, which was a weird thing where he tried to throw Tucker Carlson under the bus by saying, you know the woman I was with, eh? You were with me at dinner. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Went on there. Then he did the tweet thread. Then he did another tweet thread. And then he put out a video. Now he's got an op-ed. That worked real well in Casino. But anyway, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> and of, of course, it's in the well-regarded Washington Examiner. Um <laughs> 
Thursday penned an angry op-ed insisting he would not resign. I will not resign, despite of allegations of sex trafficking. Gates's column comes days after multiple media outlets have been talking about this whole thing. I mean, we've been going over it now for days. Uh, he, he offered defense of himself. He says, first, I have never, ever paid for sex. And second, I, as an adult man, have not slept with a 17-year-old, Gates argued. Oh, okay, can I jump in? Almost. Okay. Predictably, he says, the anti-Trump cheerleaders such as Meghan McCain, Bill Kristol, and sadly some of my feckless colleagues in Congress are going to call for me to resign. And the reason he's doing that is because top lawmakers, top GOP lawmakers, unnamed, but <clears throat> Kevin McCarthy, <clears throat> has said have said if he's indicted if he's indicted uh we're going to call we're going to expel him republicans are going to expel him we're going to call for him to resign first though we're going to call for him to resign before democrats do but i have a hint for these gop lawmakers democrats are already calling for him to resign so, <laughs> so act quickly yeah uh, we don't need to wait for the wait for the indictment but that's basically the gist of it he did say i'm absolutely not resigning my lifestyle of yesteryear may be different from how i live now but it was not and is not illegal consensual adult relationships are not illegal, although I'm sure some partisan crooks in Merrick Garland's Justice Department want to pervert the truth and the law to go after me. I will not be intimidated or extorted. Someone needs to explain to Matt Gates that this investigation was open under Bill Barr. Yeah. So let's break down. The reason I wanted to jump in at that defense is because that is the kind of nuanced argument you would make. I'm not saying you would only make this if you were guilty of the sex trafficking statute, um, but I'm saying it is the kind of thing that someone guilty of the sex trafficking statute could say and technically not be lying. Like which part? Right. Because so both parts, right? He said two things. He said, I have never paid for sex. And I have never had sex with someone who was underage. Uh, actually, he just specifically said a 17-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> leaving open the opportunity yeah, it could for be, 15, yeah, 16. 16, right, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. um, so, put a pin in those two assertions. Let us assume, for reasons just, you know, to steal, steal bot, uh, you know, Matt Gates, which is a challenge, um, that, that, that those are true. Here is the sex trafficking statute. It is 18 U.S.C. section 1591, and it includes, it, I've got to read through kind of half of it because the statute includes trafficking of adults under force, fraud, and coercion, uh, but also the trafficking of minors under the age of 18. So the offense is whoever knowingly in or affecting interstate or foreign commerce recruits, entices, harbors, transports, provides, obtains, advertises, maintains, patronizes, or solicits by any means a person, right? So that's A1. A2 is, or benefits financially or by receiving anything of value from participation in a venture, which is in violation of that. Knowing or in reckless disregard of the fact that the person has not attained the age of 18 years, and will be caused to engage in a commercial sex act shall be punished. Okay. Now that's a lot, but look at what those elements are. Mm -hmm. You have to transport a minor across state lines um, or right. Recruit entice harbor. You have to be involved in at harbor. any level. Yeah. Harbor. Even if he did not quote unquote, have sex with a 17 year old, 
if he harbored a 17-year-old for Joel Greenberg to have sex with, for example. If he was in any way involved with a scheme to do that, right, then he is guilty of sex trafficking. Um, and uh, So if what, he helped, sorry to interrupt, but if he helped yeah. Joel Greenberg make fake IDs for underage women for uh, Joel Greenberg to have sex with, that is sex trafficking a minor. If if he benefited financially or by receiving anything of value for doing that, right? And it's hard to imagine he did not, when particularly as we talk about Joel Greenberg. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, that all that's all the connection has to be is um, you have to do those two things, and the victim has to meet those two criteria. That is under the age of eighteen, and will be caused to engage in a commercial sex act. A commercial sex act is defined as expansively as possible. That is sex in exchange for anything of value. Okay. Um, and, and again, I, I should say, like, I am deliberately reading out the adult section because I, I think the issues are a hundred percent different when you're talking about, you know, potential adults involved as opposed to, you know, minors. Now, can I ask you a hypo? Cause uh, I don't think that this is particularly the case, but I, I'm assuming that this may happen more often than the latter. But if you're in Florida and you're over 18, or I don't even know if you have to be over 18 to participate in child sex trafficking, do you have to be? No. Yeah. So let's say you're 17 and you tell your seven you pay your you 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 have your 17 year old girlfriend cross state lines and in exchange for sex you put her up in a hotel. Could that be considered sex trafficking, or is that just maybe something that the feds wouldn't go after because they're both 17 and I mean it doesn't is it a commercial sex act? No, it's a. It, it, I was just gonna say it, it to me the 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 difficult nexus would be what whether that qualifies as a commercial sex act uh under uh under the u.s code um and let me read you the full definition okay okay? (laughs) it's not super helpful this is 1591 subsection e3 it says the term commercial sex act means any sex act on account of which anything of value is given to or received by any person so when i said as expansively as possible that's what i meant by that right like i I cannot envision that being written more broadly so what i would do in that case is i would put the alleged victim on the stand and i would say uh, i would ask her would you have been willing to engage in sex without crossing state lines and without having the hotel room? Was this solely, you know, for the convenience of, you know, not getting caught or whatever? And when she says yes, I would then say, so look, right, despite how broadly written it is, she was not induced to engage in sexual activity in exchange for anything, right? She was willing voluntarily to engage in sexual activity. Got it. So that would be that would be the way around it in the seventeen seventeen scenario. And please don't ask me any icky questions. Right. No. <laughs> yeah. No, I won't. So thank you. I appreciate that. That's your all heart. So um, look, this is a su- right. You think of sex trafficking as a, a super bad offense. This is a super bad offense. Okay, um, it it breaks down. Um, the penalties are more harsh uh, if the victim is under the age of fourteen 
as opposed to between 14 and 18, which is the case with the alleged victim here. Under the sentencing guidelines, um, you you the subsection B1, that is under 14, gives you a base level of 34. B2 gives you a base level of 30 and a statutory minimum of 10 years. A 30, if there are no enhancements, is 97 to 121 months. So 10 years in prison. That is the minimum if you are convicted of sex trafficking of a 17-year-old. Um, so, yeah, these are very, very serious crimes. And um, and we're watching it unfold. Yeah, and tell me a little bit about um, sort of why Joel Greenberg sort of adds a huge commerciality to this because what sort of things could joel greenberg give matt gates in return uh campaign contributions right like look Mm -hmm. joel greenberg was worked at the florida seminole county tax collector's office right Mm -hmm. um he has been a political ally and patron and booster of matt gates and if the phrase matt gates protege doesn't make you want to turn around and start punching people um then you're not you're not the show listeners we know and love (laughs) um Greenberg was arrested in August of 2020 um, in the Middle District of Florida. A grand jury returned an indictment on 12 different counts. But the big one is sex trafficking statute that we just described. Mm -hmm. As you alluded to, there are these crazy allegations regarding making fake IDs, right? So that's a federal offense. You you then have the unlawful means of identifying another person, identity theft in connection with the fake IDs. Um, There's a stalking claim. It has nothing to do with the victim. It has to do with a political opponent of Greenberg's. You'll love this, where he basically got onto Facebook and Twitter, hacked the account of a school, allegedly, hacked the account of a school administrator um, and then used uh, that to try and set up his political opponent of having had sex with a minor. And the school was like, wait, wait, none of this is real. This is all fake. Um, but, I, you know, just getting getting inside the head of somebody of, you know, well, I will try and <clears throat> paint you with what I have been credibly accused of doing. Yeah, that seems um, to be sort of the M.O., right? Yep. Like, uh, say what I am guilty of, you did. Uh, and, that is the Trump playbook. So, <laughs> And there are apparently some bits of documentary evidence that of Matt Gates' involvement, too, including cash app payments. Uh, and uh, apparently there's video somewhere of or... or uh, you know, I guess surveillance video, not surveillance video, but, uh, you know, like video ring bell, you know, the ring door. And it's something about Greenberg's office and Matt Gates being in there and them going through IDs together. Like there's some video out there. That is that is crazy. So uh, late last week, uh, the grand jury filed a third superseding indictment mm-hmm. against Greenberg. It adds nine counts of wire fraud. Now, remember, I told you of the original 12 counts, like 11 or, you know, um, wire fraud, as you know, <laughs> from several years of the Mueller report, 18 U.S.C. 1343, big, hairy deal. Um, uh Greenberg is now alleged, um, remember he's the tax collector for Seminole County, to have stolen more than $400,000 in funds uh, so that he could buy cryptocurrency, so that he could buy Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan memorabilia, and generally write checks to himself. Um and and I why you would think that like that you wouldn't get caught for like, you know, I 
did nobody else watches where the tax dollars go? That's it's bizarre to me. So now, did you see that superseding indictment? Oh yeah, I I have a copy of it. Is there anything redacted in there? Uh yeah, there 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 are redacted uh, uh, descriptions of the offenses. So yes. Okay, because my <laughs> my curiosity is now, huh? I wonder if any of that stolen money went to somehow benefit Matt Gates. I mean, could he be that dumb? It. Could Matt Gates be be that dumb? I think we both know the answer to that. Um, I will tell you this: I searched if I if I thought there was anything that gave rise to anything under the redactions that would look like a Gates, I I would have run with it, and I would have told you I I can't find it. So, got to stick with beans for now. Um, but but look, it's why it's significant if you can show a financial paper trail between greenberg and gates right because gates is uh, because greenberg is just alleged to have looted nearly half a million bucks in the stupidest way possible and so if there is any financial connection uh between gates and greenberg right like the odds look he greenberg took tax collector funds that belonged to the state and wrote checks to himself so if you took any money from greenberg you know how do you know that it wasn't which money Public it funds. was yeah, right right, <laughs> right. Um, so yeah so this looks real bad for matt gates which you know makes me real happy mm. well we will keep an eye on this <laughs> because i have a feeling i mean this is the story that keeps on giving it doesn't stop like every day there's something new every for the first couple of days every hour we had something uh new come out about it so um We'll, we'll 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 keep on top of it for you. Uh, and if you have anything you want to add or any questions, you know you can uh, get a hold of us uh, on Twitter. Obviously, so do that at aisle forty five pod. Exactly. And uh, we'll be right back with some more news. Stay with us. Hey, everybody, it's AG. Thanks for listening to Clean Up on Aisle 45. Today's episode is brought to you by ExpressVPN. So we all know how a VPN or a virtual private network allows you to create a secure connection to another network over the Internet. It protects your privacy and security online, right? But I didn't know this until recently, and it's taken my TV watching game to the next level. You can use your VPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. Over the weekend, I used ExpressVPN to binge Star Trek Discovery on UK Netflix. It was so simple. I just fired up the ExpressVPN app, changed my location to the UK, refreshed Netflix, and that's it. ExpressVPN hides your IP address and lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from almost 100 different countries. So think about all the Netflix libraries you can go through. <laughs> Love anime? Use ExpressVPN to Japanese, uh, access Japanese Netflix and be spirited away. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service. Hulu, BBC, iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there. But the reason I use ExpressVPN is to watch shows is ridiculously fast. Um, there's never any buffering or lag and you can stream HD no problem. ExpressVPN is also compatible with all your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So you can watch what you want on the go or on the big screen wherever you are. If you visit my special link right now, expressvpn.com slash cleanup, you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Support the show, watch watch what you want, and protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash cleanup. Everybody, welcome back. So something that caught my attention today was Clarence Thomas's concurrence in a case called Biden v. Knight First Amendment Institute. Now, this case is kind of weird, so let me make sure I have it correct. On Monday, SCOTUS, the Supreme Court, 
granted certiorari in the case, immediately ruled vacating the judgment of the Second Circuit, and then three, immediately remanded back to the Second Circuit with instructions to dismiss the case as moot? Yep, that is exactly right. Um, This is another one of these Trump-era cases that, um, you know, we would have one every 15 years uh, until... Donald Trump was in office, and now we've had six or seven of them. Um, and and it applies the Munsingware doctrine. <laughs> and the reason it's doing that, right, is because Munsingware are you know uh, 1930s underwear case that we've talked about on this show and and elsewhere. Um, the reason is because Munsingware is a doctrine about how the court should act when a case becomes moot because you've run out the clock, and nobody's run out the clock like Donald Trump, right? So let's set up the fact pattern. You know this. Donald Trump blocked a ton of people on Twitter. Those people were then organized by the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University to file a lawsuit saying that Trump uses Twitter as a public forum. So the First Amendment applies to Trump's use of Twitter, even though it very clearly doesn't apply to ours. Right. And 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 importantly, right, for the plaintiffs here, um, one of the the prohibitions, right, is that once a government is using a particular space as a public forum, it has to remain viewpoint neutral, right? You, you can't pull the same shit you do at a Trump campaign rally and just throw out people you disagree with, right? And if you don't like that, right, this is one of these things that does not require judicial intervention at all. If you don't like the rules governing a public forum, there's a super easy way around that. Don't put the stamp of the government on it, right? Donald Trump could have as many campaign rallies as he wants, but once he goes to a public forum, once he goes to a town hall, he can't just, you know, have his private security goons knock the crap out of him and throw out anybody who's a Democrat. That's why Donald Trump didn't do town halls, right? Mm, right. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and if I recall correctly, the plaintiffs at both the trial court level uh, Trump appealed, and then that the Second Circuit Court affirmed said, yeah, Trump uses this for official business all the time. He hires and fires people. I remember them saying you can't block people because it's a public forum. Uh, he announces executive orders there. He conducts policy. He conducts foreign policy via Twitter. So you can't pretend like this is just m- my Twitter account, right? Yep, exactly right. And the key phrase here that the Second Circuit used was interactive forum, right? So... Again, let's go back to the idea of a press conference or a town hall, right? Private campaign event, you're just a passive recipient. You can kick out Democrats to your heart's content. But if you're representative, oh, I don't know, let's pick out of a hat here, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and you bill an event as a town hall with your constituents so that you can charge the taxpayers for it. And if you don't think she's going to do this, you don't know Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? Um, you can't say, oh, haha, I'm appearing here as Marjorie Taylor Greene, the private person. No, like you are there. It's a public forum. It's interactive. Um, the First Amendment applies when you're interacting with, with your constituents. Um, that means that it invokes the protections of the First Amendment, which include non-discrimination on the basis of viewpoints. And look, the reason that government officials get on social media platforms, right, is to interact, right? If they just wanted to make announcements, they got, you know, they got lots of ability to do that. So is it Munsingware moot because <laughs> Trump's not on Twitter anymore? K- k- kind of, right? Like it is Trump doesn't have a Twitter account. Uh, Biden doesn't conduct foreign policy this way, right? Like, um, it, 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 it says 
There's no reason for us to continue to review the case. And, and let me tell you, I think it's moot because of that. The question about being Munsingware moot, right, says that, yeah, I, I love it. Uh, it says that if the rules change while you're in between, while, while you're in between an adverse ruling and the next court's review, the Supreme Court review, you can go back and erase the bad case law that got you there, right? The kind of like retroactive, you know, uh, undoing the infinity gauntlet, right? Like that you can pretend like those cases never happened. And clearly at least five ninths of the Supreme court views the perfectly reasonable night first amendment Institute decision at the second circuit as bad law. Um, so they said, Munsingware, go back delete everything, pretend like it didn't happen. Um, that should have been the end of it. We should have had a one-line order that said, uh, cert granted, reversed, vacated, remanded to the Second Circuit with instructions to vacate as moot, right? Yeah, so then, yeah, that was going to be my next question. Why did Clarence Thomas write 12 more pages? <laughs> I mean, it, it looks like he's making two different arguments here. First, he's arguing that 1A doesn't apply to Twitter, and then he's arguing what does apply to Twitter are commercial rules about common carriers, quote-unquote common carriers, saying that Twitter is like an airline, railroad, phone company, or a public shipping company? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, a lot to unpack, so let's, let's take a look at it. Okay, so first... On the First Amendment, I mean, there, there's just no other way to say it other than Thomas is just laughably, stupidly wrong making stuff up about the First Amendment. His argument is, and I promise you, I am doing this credit. I am not oversimplifying in a negative way. His argument is Twitter controls Twitter more than Trump controls Twitter. So you can't hold Trump responsible for anything that he does on Twitter. And if that makes no sense to you, congratulations, you're smarter than Clarence Thomas. Um, seriously, the response to the law about the town halls was this, and I quote directly, quote, but government officials who informally gather with constituents in a hotel bar can ask the hotel to remove a pesky patron who elbows into the gathering to loudly voice his views. The difference is that the government controls the space in the first scenario and the hotel in the latter. Now, that is a crazy person thing to say, and it is not followed or preceded by any citation to any case or law or anything, because no such case like this exists, okay? Trump did not, and and, and the and the analogy is, is bizarre, right? Trump didn't use Twitter like he was hanging out in a hotel bar with his buddies and just happened to get bothered by a lunatic. He used it as a way to engage with lunatics, right? Um, and the fact that Twitter had ultimate control over the account it is irrelevant because Trump was the one who blocked everybody, not Twitter, right? So this is just bad, right? This is an embarrassing argument even for Clarence Thomas. It hurts my head. It should. It hurts my brain. <laughs> uh, but it makes me want to hang out in a hotel bar. Uh, I've noticed. That I am down for, yeah. That's a feeling that I'm getting here. Uh, but what about the common carrier stuff? Isn't that a way to... Is there? Uh, that's a, just a way to read back into in those restrictions? Well, sort of. Okay, and, and, and this is where... What Clarence Thomas is doing is repeating right-wing political talking points, okay? And, and, and I need to break this down a little bit because advocates of net neutrality have wanted ISPs, Internet Service Providers, to be classified as common carriers because common carrier, like you talked about railroads, right, can't discriminate 
on the basis of the services that they provide, right? And so net neutrality folks have said, let's do that. Let's call Comcast a common carrier. That would prevent them from throttling the speed of their low-dollar internet customers in favor of their high-dollar ones. We broke down those arguments. It, it took us two hours on opening arguments, episode 64 to 65. Really fascinating. It's not cut and dried one way or the other. Um, uh, but Thomas's position is not about the Internet service providers. It's about social media platforms. And this is where he's just 100% regurgitating garbage arguments from the political far right. They are hoping that they can confuse you with the similar language so that this looks like the kind of stuff that the Electronic Frontier Foundation has been arguing for. And they can say, no, see, this is just, you know, uh, common, ca- right? This will protect you in some ways. Mm. Yeah, so basically Thomas is arguing that the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, mm-hmm. should be able to regulate all of Facebook and Twitter and impose content-based based regulations on every user, but the Supreme Court can't apply a First Amendment-based restriction on the president having co-opted Twitter for his own purposes? That is exactly right, and... Uh, I, I, I wish our listeners could see your face right now. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's that's not the worst of it. The worst is footnote five. Footnote five. <laughs> just pages. That's my new band. Yeah, just, uh, pages eleven to twelve. The very end of this unhinged concurrence um, invokes section 230 of the telecommunications decency act of 1996. Yeah, I knew. I knew this was the target. Yeah. This had to have been. Yeah. Um, and and you remember this for our listeners that that uh, lack the uh, eidetticness of your memory. Um, this was a very brief Trump temper tantrum in December of 2020, in which he threatened not to sign the COVID stimulus bill unless it repealed Section 230. Um, and look, the simplest way I can explain Section 230 is that it's what makes social media possible, right? It says Twitter is like a library and not a newspaper. And, and, and here's what I mean by that, right? Like, if I write a defamatory article about you, and it gets published in a newspaper, and then you read that newspaper article in a library, you can't sue the library, but you can sue the newspaper, right? You can't sue the library. They didn't write it. I did. You can't sue the library because they didn't publish it. The newspaper did. All the library does is collects all the newspapers and says, here, read at your own risk, Right. Right. And we saw a bunch of this when, you know, I think Devin Nunes tried to sue a fake cow (laughs) on Twitter, but not Twitter itself. Right. But tried to move it because Twitter was based in some certain place uh, and and lost that argument because you weren't suing Twitter. That is right. And and and. And that is exactly right. The reason he didn't even try to sue Twitter is because Twitter could have moved to dismiss Section 230, statutory immunity, go the hell away. And even uh, somebody as stupid as Devin Nunes knew not to sue all of Twitter. If Section 230 were to be repealed, Devin Nunes could sue all of Twitter for what at Devin Nunes's mom says on Twitter. Um, now, now, look, um, there may be good reason. Like, I, I do not want us to be taking the position that Section 230 is a panacea, that there aren't problems with it. Look, like it was written in 1996. It uses words that make no sense, right? It uses interactive computer service because they're thinking of AOL with the little CD that you plug in, right? Like, so <laughs> that there, it, it, like, I don't mean to say that Section 230 is perfect or what, but I do mean to say that what we see here is 
the right wing activist Supreme Court saying, oh, Trump couldn't get 230 repealed through Congress, even though he was the president and controlled the Senate. So let's have the Supreme Court do this for him. Um, and it's just it's 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 disgusting. It is exhibit number eight billion in our activist Supreme Court. Well, um, yeah. And, and it, to me, that just seems like that's what he's doing. Right. Paving the way. It, it look once an argument is listed in a concurrence or in a separate dissent, right? You can now cite back to that in later opinions, right? You can force the court to talk about this as if you're doing something other than citing yourself, citing yourself, citing yourself. Um, and, and this is how crazy pants ideas get promulgated in, um, and, and again, it's not just the right wing that does this, but it is the right wing that has done this to marvelous efficiency over the past 30 years. Um, the, 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 the most obvious example being inventing out of whole cloth a brand new jurisprudence around the Second Amendment uh, that enabled the court to hide behind a veneer of, no, look, like, see, we have real citations in this, but all of their citations were to law review articles citing to Scalia dissents, which then Scalia cited to those law review articles back in it's just it's it's this is what they're trying to do it doesn't always work but this is the first step for it working Mm, gross yeah well we'll keep an eye on it and uh if there were ever a lawyer that might be interested (laughs) in taking a case like that to court it could be the subject of our interview with Adam Klasfeld. You don't want to miss it. <laughs> oh man, this is this is great. Please do stick around. This is a fantastic interview with a lot of uh, behind the scenes knowledge. Yep, we'll be right back. Hey everybody, it's AG, and this portion of the pod is brought to you by Policy Genius. This time of year, I always do my spring cleaning and get my house in order, but you can get your financial house in order too, and get a head start by revisiting your home and auto insurance with Policy and Genius. Policy Genius can help you kill two birds with one stone. You can compare home and auto insurance rates, and you can save up to $1,055 per year by reshopping. That's money you can put towards things that you really care about. So first, here's what you do. You head to policygenius.com, answer a few quick questions about yourself and your property, then Policy Genius will take it from there. They compare rates to over 30 top insurers from Progressive to nationwide and find your lowest rates. The Policy Genius team will look at all the ways to maximize your savings too, including bundling your home and auto policy. And if Policy Genius finds a better rate than what you're paying now, they'll switch you over for free. They do all the heavy lifting. It's no wonder that with that level of service, Policy Genius has earned a five star rating across over 1,600 reviews on Trustpilot and Google. If you're worried that this year is flying by and you've barely gotten anything done, take a deep breath. Policy Genius has it all figured out. They will help you make the most of this month in minutes. Just reshop your home and auto insurance and you could save up to $1,055. So head to policygenius.com to get started right now. Policy Genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. Everybody, welcome back to Clean Up on Aisle 45. Andrew Torres and I today are joined by the host of the Objections podcast. He's also at Law and Crime. Please welcome Adam Klasfeld. Adam, it's nice to speak to you. Nice to speak to you again, too. So uh, this latest episode of Objections... Um, Wow. Uh, some of the <laughs> some, within the first 15 minutes, it's it's already like I have a murder board with yarn and photos and uh, and everything trying to connect all these dots. But this is about Lynn Wood. And uh, I know Andrew uh, Torres and I have spoken uh probably excessively, about Lynn Wood um, in the past. And 
but this story is is new. You have the exclusive and the scoop, and I was wondering if you could tell me some of the top line points of what you found out through your this process of investigative reporting. So. My first episode of the podcast, Objections, went into a litigation between Wood and his former law partners that started with exclusive tapes. Now, this latest episode is an outgrowth of that uh, because that lawsuit with his former partners talks about this, what the partners describe as an unraveling that happened in the late 2019, early 2020 timeframe, where they claim that he uh, described himself as the second, possibly the second coming of uh, Christ. They uh, claim two of the former partners accused him of assault. And someone, a source, reached out to me over the making of this podcast and said, came to me with a very similar story. He said that Linwood assaulted him, that this attack happened shortly before the 2020 election, and that he had tapes that showed him, uh, we found out as I started listening to these tapes, they started having a lot of the same themes that I had come to become familiar with, with the other litigation with the former law partners. So we were exploring this period in Linwood's career. Now, to take a little step back here, Linwood was a prominent defamation lawyer. He represented John Benet Ramsey. He used to have a very different name before the 2020 election when he became associated with this Kraken litigation to overturn the election. A person who served as executive director of his Fight Back Foundation, David Hancock, uh, had also run security at his house, is uh, known as a to Motley Plantation, a former plantation, and just gave insights into what was going on in his life as this Linwood of that kind of reputation of the prominent defamation attorney was starting to become known as the other Linwood, a kind of rising star of the political right. Uh, He became known for other clients, one of the most prominent of whom was uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, the accused Kenosha shooter. And so part of what this person, who was the executive director of his Fight Back Foundation, uh, had become a part of that Fight Back Foundation, that used to be associated with Kyle Rittenhouse. And so that's one of the top line points of the episode is the transformation of Lynn Wood. The second top line point of the episode is what happened in Wood's former association with the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Now, Dave Hancock, the former executive director, former Navy SEAL, was a supporter of Kyle Rittenhouse. Yeah, I I thought the the interview with Hancock was really persuasive to me right like you know as as a lawyer my job is to evaluate the credibility of witnesses um and hancock says things that those of us you know sort of proudly on the left who, who have been touting linwood as crazy person uh would would never say right like he he describes you know the genius of linwood and talking to him about uh you know various supreme court opinions he describes um also you, you hear hancock um 
you know, as an aside, right, say like, well, you know, and obviously, um, uh, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse acted in self-defense, uh, which uh, it, that's that that's that's not obvious to at least two thirds of the, of the panel here. Um, I, I don't want to speak for you. Adam. <laughs> I, I, so, you know, I in in approaching this episode, I'm I'm approaching everything from the point of view of a journalist like i'm not taking someone tells me that they support kyle rittenhouse i'm reporting their story and i will be reporting the prosecutor's side of the story so you know so far as that goes and was it hancock who said he was starstruck when he first met absolutely linwood yeah so it's a very different sort of perspective right that we're used to sort of dealing with on either this show or the daily means or opening arguments you know it's just a kind of a a different perspective but i think andrew what you were getting at was that it, it, it makes his story very credible right like he really really respects this guy and um has so many has so many great things to say about him in the lead up uh, that it kind of gives more punch to to the to you know the what he's what he's ultimately gets at which is that transformation you were talking about right adam right so in terms of how lawyers and journalists gauge credibility, you look at things like, is he just, is it just a series of insults? Does the guy appear to have an axe to grind? <laughs> and I think that's one of the things you're getting at, Andrew. And another thing is, you know, the, uh, so far in many ways, they shared political ends. Uh, Dave Hancock and, uh, and Lynn Wood both believed that Kyle Rittenhouse acted in self-defense. So that's the kind of perspective that he was coming from. Um, the other way that you gauge credibility is how does it match up with other evidence that they have? And the remarkable part of this story is that uh, Dave Hancock produced tapes that he took of him and Lynn Wood. And a lot of those tapes really do appear to corroborate some of the things that he was saying, which is why we ran them. Well, and and let's add your part in this, which is uh, you sent Linwood questions to which he provided recorded answers uh, that you played back during the podcast. And again, for somebody who thought he was going on to the Supreme Court, uh, want to ask you about that um it, it, these are not answers that a lawyer would ever counsel you know somebody to to give in public uh let alone you know give on your own behalf um and uh and, and i just i don't want to i don't want to spoil too much of the podcast it's a real it's a fascinating and and fabulous uh uh episode uh but but it it, it also buttressing, right? Like kind of the, the third leg buttressing that story are Lynn Wood's own words. <laughs> right. And that's how I would approach any story. Yeah. That, you know, if I have, and uh, Lynn Wood has apparently responded uh, to this episode on Telegram to his 800,000 followers. And part of it has involved, of his response has involved. Uh, sharing a portion, not the whole thing, but a portion of our email exchange. And it shows that I quite extensively told him what's on the tapes and sought his comment. And it, I, in approaching any story, what are his own words? In many instances, he doesn't dispute the substance of the conversation sometimes he confirms it sometimes he does make a dispute without 
with varying degrees of specificity, but we include his response. Yeah. Uh, he <laughs> left a voicemail uh, to me, and that voicemail is part of the show. That, yeah. an, an unhinged voicemail, yeah. I, would, I would say. And I have to say, I, I have to congratulate you on your approach to this, your journalistic approach and your integrity on this, because I, I go by very different standards. My, my standards are, do they have a punchable face? Uh, <laughs> are they a Republican? Uh, and do they agree with me? Because those are the three most important things uh, to me and w- whether or not I make speculation. So I do appreciate your approach on this because, I, you know, like like Andrew was saying, the, the amount of stuff corroborating uh, this guy's story, the, the former Navy SEAL, and along with you also spoke to, I believe you spoke to Kyle Rittenhouse's mom. That's correct. So how that came about, one of the allegations here, now I mentioned a little bit earlier that Dave Hancock, the former Navy SEAL, was the executive director of Linwood's Fight Back Foundation. And Linwood even tweeted uh, about him, you know, identifying him as such. And they had a falling out and that falling out I'll had say. to do with an <laughs> un- previously unreported gun incident that we'll talk about a little bit later. But part of that incident had to do with the direction of this Fight Back Foundation. And during an interview with me, David Hancock claimed that Wendy Rittenhouse asked Winwood for an accounting and that he effectively blew her off. He, he wouldn't provide it. And I asked Linwood about that. Uh, he denied it. And so we had a he said, he said story at one point, Dave Hancock versus Linwood, about what she, she said, Wendy Rittenhouse. So eventually, I just had to get Wendy Rittenhouse's side of the story. And that turned into a top line uh, revelation of this story, which is that Wendy Rittenhouse demanded an accounting. Wendy Rittenhouse claims that Lynn Wood wanted Kyle Rittenhouse to remain in jail even after they had raised the bail money uh, that would have allowed him to get out. In in her words, that she she claims that Lynn Wood believed that there would be a post-election Armageddon. Uh, that was the word she used, an Armageddon, and that uh, he would be safe in jail because society was falling apart. And that was a pretty explosive revelation. I asked Linwood about it. He supplied his response, which is in the episode. Uh, but that's how that came about. We had a uh, we had an accusation coming from Dave Hancock. Linwood answered it with a denial, and Wendy Rittenhouse backed up Dave Hancock's side of the story. Yeah, um, I, I I also think you you may be contacted uh, by the. Uh, firm that represents Linwood's former law partners, uh, because as you mentioned at the top of the episode, um, they have uh, filed a, uh, a lawsuit against Linwood. Um, and essentially, the argument goes something like this. It says, Linwood's behavior has become so erratic and crazy that it's compromised the business of the firm, right? And so in, in particular, when I first covered this lawsuit on opening arguments, um, I, I was drawn to paragraph 164. It's on page 52, and it says, right, and, and basically it says that um, Linwood uh, settled a case prematurely uh, because he thought, uh, this is the allegation, uh, that they would reveal embarrassing information about him, Linwood, right? And that's 
that's a real problem if you uh, are a law firm, right? And you <laughs> yeah. have partners uh, who are, you know, dedicated to number one, serving your client, and number two, enriching the firm, and number three, like, you know, protecting Linwood from accusations of being a crazy person are, are you know, are in that particular order. And here's the allegation in the paragraph. It says, um, Defendant Wood had repeatedly voiced his concerns about his misconduct being disclosed as he feared it would interfere with his imminent receipt of the Presidential Medal of Freedom and appointment as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. The latter belief was based on two things. Number one, a decades-plus-old prophecy that Defendant Wood heard in a YouTube video. And number two, something he's since publicly tweeted about, a conspiracy theory that Chief Justice John Roberts would be revealed to be a part of Jeffrey Epstein's sex trafficking ring. Um, I, I want to talk about that second part, but the first part just seems bonkers, right? So Miss Cleo told him. Uh, yeah, he watched a YouTube video with a prophecy. You asked him about that, and I, why don't I just set that up as the question for you? Right. I did <laughs> ask Dave Hancock about that prophecy, and he replied with very specific uh, answer. Uh, he said that he had heard Linwood talk about it, that the prophecy was about a from a self-proclaimed prophet named Kim Clement, uh, who has a YouTube video that, you know, my research found had, you know, as of the time that we're talking has been viewed millions of times. I, I forget the exact number. And <laughs> 980,000 by Linwood. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, and in the uh, prophecy, uh, you know, described by Clement and his acolytes, uh, Clement said that two would resign in disgrace from the highest court in, all, in the land. Uh, his believers believe that uh, Mr. Clement predicted the Trump presidency. And so, that's a story that Hancock, Hancock said that he heard from Lynn Wood, and that's something that tracks the allegations of the lawsuit that you mentioned. It's right there uh, and has, uh, you know, been out there for a very long time. And that goes to another point, because right now, Lynn Wood is still presenting his conspiracy theory that Chief Justice Roberts is part of Jeffrey Epstein's pedophile ring, uh, based on this whole idea that there was a John Roberts uh, in uh, Jeffrey Epstein's flight logs. Um, now, he was in Jeffrey Epstein's flight logs on the same day that Chief John Roberts of the Supreme Court was presiding at the Supreme Court. So it doesn't really <laughs> wash. I mean, it's a conspiracy theory. Well, I almost believed it up until that alibi <laughs> came out. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, one of the people who actually pointed that out was Linwood's former client, Nick Sandman, the Covington Catholic student, you know, debunking Linwood, his former lawyer's conspiracy theory. But essentially, uh, in terms of that conspiracy theory, he's still pushing it. And the lawsuit and the uh, allegations that are reported on this episode uh, show that he has held that for a long time, predating the 2020 elections. I have a, a legal question for, for Andrew before we get out of here, kind of based on all this, because as I was listening to this episode, thinking about 
uh, what it takes to get disbarred as an attorney. Uh, and it always has to do with mismanagement or stealing clients' funds, right? It's got to be it's got to be pretty up there. Otherwise, it's sanctions, which we've seen him kind of go through a little bit in, in Wisconsin, I believe. But I, I was I was just had all these memories of Avenatti coming back into my head. Uh, and and so I think that the question that I have here is for for disbarment. Do, do you have to prove intent? Because I mean, if he technically thinks that there was a prophecy and doesn't, you know, wasn't actually trying to bilk the written houses or anything like that. I, I just, I was wondering kind of, I guess what the, the standard of proof is for a disbarment. Yeah. You, you do not have to prove intent. Um, lawyers are kind of drilled from sort of day one that you're admitted to the bar, uh, that, you know, malpractice, you know, misconduct will get you sanctions, uh, but mishandling client funds will get you disbarred. Um, and all, all of those, by and large, um, are are strict liability offenses, right? Like you commingle funds. Um, it may be an interesting part of the story as to why you commingled the funds, but it's the commingling of the funds that serves as the disbarable offense. I, I will say that the Lynn the, the Lynn Wood case. Um, it, I, I I kind of have this theory that. Um, Maybe those rules are about to change now that we have misconduct of a sort that I think lawyers couldn't have envisioned 10 years ago, right? Seditious conspiracy to bring down the United States and flood the court with patently frivolous allegations, you know, backed up by secret experts named Spider, right? Like, and, and, uh, and so when, when Lynn Wood tweeted out, the John Roberts, uh, uh, Jeffrey Epstein sex stuff, um, he he represents Carter Page in Delaware, right? And uh, and the judge in Delaware, uh, sua sponte, issued a show cause order that said, um, "I've admitted Lynn Wood here, pro hoc vice, um, and I realized like this is just a you know a court in Delaware, like this is just my domain, but like I, I have an obligation to make sure it's not populated by idiots and frauds. Um, defend yourself." Uh, and Linwood did, and the judge was like, "Yeah, no, get out of here," and uh, right. and revoked his pro hoc vice motion. And and the co counsel on that case was John Pierce, yep. who was the co founder of the Fight Back Foundation. There it is. Yeah. So it's a uh, in he, he is another figure around the time that of Fight Back's formation. There were lots of lawsuits uh, alleging massive debts. What this episode raises further questions about, we have. Wendy Rittenhouse and Dave Hancock demanding an audit. Uh, his response to that audit is that audit request is we will comply with any audit demanded by law. If if the law demands it, he'll comply with it. That was Linwood's response. But it will shine a light on the, this demand. Why is another former client saying that this five hundred one c four? You know what? What do the books say? What have they been doing with the money now that you have two of the former uh, people tied to that organization demanding that audit? Well, it's an absolutely fascinating story. There are so many pieces to mm-hmm. it and so many parts to it. Uh, we didn't have time to get to the gun incident, but you can hear a tape <laughs> of it uh, if you listen to the latest episode of Objections with Adam Klasfeld. You really need to hear this episode. I wish we had an hour to talk, uh, but that's that's sort of what your episode is for. <laughs> so I encourage everybody to go listen to it. And I appreciate you taking the time to answer our questions today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. Everybody, Adam Klasfeld, check it out. 
It's called Objections, and you can also find find him at Law and Crime. I appreciate your time. And uh, we'll be right back, everybody, with uh, comings and goings. Stick around. Hey, everybody, it's AG, and this segment of the podcast is brought to you by the best thing ever in the universe. It's called Magic Spoon Cereal. It's incredibly delicious, a super healthy cereal that brings joy to your mornings or afternoons or evenings or nighttime. My favorite food growing up was always cereal. I remember watching cartoons, munching on a big bowl of cereal. Usually you would eat like a whole box and then drink the delicious milk afterwards, watching Saturday morning cartoons. But as an adult trying to eat healthier, I've had to give up cereal because it's usually full of sugar, chemicals, and other junk. But I recently tried Magic Spoon, and it tastes exactly like regular cereal from your childhood, but it is super nutritious. Magic Spoon has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. And only under, it's 140 calories. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. And exciting news, Magic Spoon is releasing two amazing new flavors for a limited time only. We're talking about cookies and cream and maple waffle. And if that isn't the most comforting indulgent combination, I do not know what is. This is the ultimate treat-yourself combo, so make sure you get some while you can for a limited time or build your own box. Available flavors to build your very own custom bundle or cocoa fruity frosted peanut butter and cinnamon i love the great new flavors combining them is amazing too cocoa and peanut butter is delicious for example so go to magicspoon.com slash cleanup grab the new limited edition cookies and cream maple waffle or custom bundle uh, and try it today and be sure to use promo code cleanup at checkout to save five dollars off your order the offer is now good anywhere in the u.s or canada but only when you use our code at checkout and magic spoon is so confident it's backed with a 100 percent happiness guarantee so if you don't like it for any reason they'll refund your money no questions asked so no risk Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash cleanup and use code cleanup to save $5 off. Everybody, welcome back. What an incredible interview. I love talking to Adam Klasfeld, by the way. Yeah, me too. Just (sighs) such a great reporter. Um, So much more integrity than my my punch people in the face uh, way. This is punch people in the face episode, right? I mean, when you lead up, when the A block (laughs) is about Matt Gates, I mean, that that is... (laughs) Future future encyclopedia will will uh, converge on Matt Gates for the uh, His photo punchable of face. punchable face. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. him, yeah, him and Skrillex. I'm with you. Okay. Uh, anyway, remember last week when we talked about Biden tasking the EPA mm-hmm. to go through all the former guys' policies and shit can the ones not authored by the agency or that weren't based on favors <laughs> or, or that actually were based on favors instead of science? You know, like uh, we didn't author any of these things, and we there, there was upwards of ninety things. Uh-huh. That fell into the shit can category. Well, this week, according to the Washington Post, the Environmental Protection Agency administrator, that's Michael Reagan, we talked about him last week, will purge more than 40 outside experts appointed under Trump from two key advisory panels, a move he says will help restore the role of science at the agency and reduce the heavy influence of industry over environmental regulations. Gosh, I can't imagine industry like the fossil fuel industry would want some sort of power over (laughs) the Environmental Protection Agency. Now, it's an unusual decision. It was announced Wednesday, and it's going to sweep away outside researchers picked under the previous administration whose expert advice helped the agency craft regulations and policy related to air pollution, the oil and gas extraction method known as fracking, and other issues like that. Yeah, so uh, good goodbye to you. Um, <laughs> critics critics uh, have, have noted, including us, have noted that uh, under the <clears throat> former guy, uh, membership on these two panels. So that is, uh, the first was the EPA's Science Advisory Board. That, that sounds nice, right? And the Clean Air Scientific Advisory Committee um, that they uh, were 
biased in favor of regulated industries um, and that their positions were uh, frequently outside the scientific mainstream. And look, this is, as we talked about last week, one of just several moves designed to try and reestablish some kind of scientific integrity across the federal government after what officials have characterized as a quote concerted effort under the previous <laughs> president to sideline or interfere with research on climate change covid all the issues that you can think about and look this is really really important for the way in which the administrative procedure act works right because to change the rules when you engage in new rulemaking you have to say that you have conducted fact finding you have to have done the research and that's why they went through the rigmarole under the other guy of putting these folks in here who would say, oh, yes, we absolutely did do the research. Yeah. yeah. Well, the interesting part is Republicans are now responding to this move. Okay. <laughs> oh, what are they saying, A.G.? Tell us. <laughs> well, oddly, it's the same shit they said about the initial review last week, that Biden is undermining confidence in the agency by kicking out those with contrary views. Think about that for a second. <laughs> You're degrading the EPA by firing people with contrary views to science. Yeah, it, it's the that's what it's the saying. teach the controversy at writ large at the government. Anyway, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it's fine. Now, both Reagan, who and and we here at Clean Up on Aisle Forty Five, concede that it's not always clear how science should inform policy. However, I think we're all pretty satisfied with the clarity of the underlying science, (laughs) and and that was the same thing last week, too. They're like, you're kicking out people with opposing viewpoints. Opposing viewpoints on science is is different than an opposing viewpoint on how to turn it into policy. Yeah, and and look, this is a thing that the law is well prepared to address, right? Courts every day have to determine whether to admit expert testimony, right? And one of the criteria for expert testimony is, does this reflect, does this expert's testimony reflect the mainstream views of science? Does it use methodology that is is, uh, testable, that is repeatable? All those sorts of criteria, right? That's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about like... You know, kicking out everybody with one position on one view. We're talking about kicking kicking out folks who are masquerading as cargo cult science. Um, it it it. I can't em- emphasize how important that is. Yeah, alternative science. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So so speaking of how now you know we talked a lot about the science of it and why these these folks are leaving, but talking about how science becomes policy. Uh, these advisory panels played a role in that, right? Converting the actual science into policy. Yeah, and again, this was set up before everything was broken, right? So Congress creates the advisory boards because remember, every executive agency is acting under the powers delegated to it by Congress, right? They don't inherently have authority. They have delegated authority from Congress to act within the confines of their instructions. And the advisory panels are designed to then provide executive branch officials, the policymakers, with the best advice from experts from a range of backgrounds. So, again, whenever you see that these members on these boards served three-year terms, right? And whenever you see an odd, an odd number, right, that is some legislator going, well, let's do my best to make this nonpartisan, right? Um it because three years is you know fifty percent longer than a congressional term. It means you know they're going to likely to come up in between elections, that sort of thing. So 
the 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 members of the advisory boards their recommendations are not binding right um but but they do carry weight when you're developing the policy again because of the administrative procedures act right because you can now cite you know we agreed to, you know, expand the level of friable asbestos that we permit to be imported into the United States uh, because, you know, we found the following four things. And then you can drop a footnote and you can say, you know, so and so on the science advisory board said, well, actually, like I put asbestos on my cornflakes every morning and I'm fine. Right. Yeah. So that, that that's that's what's important. Um, but but look, um, this move is not just about kicking out like the science deniers, right? I mean, like, can we talk about, like, other ways in which the other guy's administration undermined those advisory panels' integrity? Yeah, there, there's more than one way. Because, as a matter of fact, remaking the composition of the panels is necessary after the former guy's administration illegally barred academics who received EPA grants from <sighs> serving on the advisory panels. Now, I know. It gets better. Uh, the administration had argued that scientists who received research funding would not be impartial in their advice. But, you know, Rex Tillerson's son would be great. <laughs> uh, I'm not saying he was on the panel, just giving an example. But environmental and public health advocates, along with some former career officials within the agency, said the policy effectively elevated experts from industry while muzzling independent scientists. And I'm pretty sure that doesn't just sound idiotic, because... The courts agreed, didn't they? Oh, yeah. Look, the Trump administration ended up rescinding that restriction on grant recipients after being ordered to do so last year by a federal <laughs> court, right? Um, but, of course, that didn't change any of the appointments to the board, and it didn't change any of the substantive rulemaking that was enacted during that interregnum. So um, EPA is now calling for new applications for the two panels, right? Huh. Um Here's the hilarious part. Nick Conger, an EPA spokesman, said that advisors fired from the committees are, quote, eligible and encouraged to reapply if they so choose. OK, so normally, like the agency would have asked for, you know, new applications for the handful of positions later this year. Um, uh, What do you think we might see on some of these resumes for the examples of their Good work under the former administration. <laughs> well, here's, yeah, if, if any of these folks reapply, they can say, hey, uh, I was uh, on the uh, Clean Air Scientific Advisory Committee, uh, and I advised the EPA to keep the standards for ozone at the current level, even as public health experts outside the agency and pretty much everyone else in the frickin' world argued that they should be tightened to help protect poor and minority communities. That's one example. The agency followed the committee's advice and declined to issue stricter standards uh, for the smog-forming uh, pollutant, which has been linked to asthma and lung disease. Uh Another guy, the tr the guy Trump picked to lead the Clean Air Advisory Committee, named Louis Anthony Tony Cox. Uh, I have to say it in that <laughs> oh, voice. Fat Tony, sure, love that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Is a consultant who has worked for several government agencies, but also for the oil, coal, pork, and chemical industries. It's a weird combination. I think it's because of the giant shit lagoons of of at, at commercial <laughs> pig farms. Anyway. <laughs> So Cox dismissed the EPA's methods for tabulating the public health benefits of smog regulations. He said it was they were unreliable, logically unsound, and inappropriate. That position distressed many air pollution scientists, as you might <laughs> yeah. imagine. 
Two, in fact, published a paper in the journal Science that warned that Cox wanted to fundamentally change the EPA's process for scientific assessment. So those are just two examples of uh, some of these 40 now fired people who, who are encouraged to reapply for these positions, uh, which I, I think is a nice way of just sort of saying, fuck you yeah, forever. Yeah, bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I, I, I'm glad we ended on that one because um, it, it really does underscore the fact that the last administration was not just trying to change the outcome, they were trying to change the rules, right? And they're still doing that, right? And mm-hmm. and like process arguments are harder to explain and win and feel passionate about. So the takeaway here is, right, keep keep looking at not only, you know, what what is the substantive outcome, but also how do we get there? Yeah. Yep, and uh, there's going to be a lot more of these, I have a feeling. But, you know, like you said, Andrew, normally next year sometime they might say, oh, we got five new people we need to put on the advisory board. Forty. Forty people from two advisory boards. And in the first 70 days. So (laughs) that's how urgent... Uh, it, it it is that how much they were denying it. It it, it that, that that's a that's another great point. Again, like this is so far an administration that is doing the hard work behind the scenes that only like you and me and our listeners you know care about or even know about. Um, but uh, you know this is not going to feature in any 2022 campaign ads. Um, but but they're devoting real resources and time to it because. Um, we have to because <laughs> because everything is at stake if if we don't, you know, root this kind of uh, uh, institutional roadblocks out, you know, root and branch. So good job. Mm-hmm. It is all part of clean up on aisle 45. Oh, that's why you're the best. <laughs> There's going to be so much more to talk about and uh, we will cover it all. We thank you very much for joining us and thanks to our patrons. We will see you Saturday, this Saturday at noon. Patrons for our trivia challenge, our pub trivia challenge. Uh, pub meaning, you know, it's virtual, but we, I guess have a beer uh, if you're into it. And uh, it's it's going to be absolutely wonderful. It's just me and Andrew on one team. You can have up to five people on your team. It's just me me and Andrew, and there will be an '80s pop culture category. So, I'm very excited. Uh, that's that's where that's where we're going to catch up. If we, if 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 at any point we fall behind, I I feel real good about our chances in that category. <laughs> yeah, either that or god awful movies. <laughs> be good at. All right, everybody. Until next week. Thank you again for listening to episode 12 of Clean Up on All 45. We'll see you next time. Bye bye. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written and produced by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres and is engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazell and Starburns Audio. Fact-checking and research by Allison Gill and Andrew Torres with quality assurance and media by Muller She Wrote LLC. Branding design and logo by Starburns Audio and Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our copy is written by Jesse Egan. Our music is written and recorded by Adam Orr and Christopher Hoffey and our opening sequence was designed by Allison Gill and mixed by Mackenzie Mazell and Starburns Audio. Follow us on Twitter at Aisle45Pod and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss our cleanup on aisle 45 after party over on the stereo app. We'll be going live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 Eastern, and we want to hear from you. Our first stereo show went a little bit like this. These big corporations are donating money to politicians that are trying to suppress the vote. Uh, and that public pressure got them to come out and go, we 
oppose this, right? So your voice does matter. People just like you um, have have made a difference. Um, and I love, you're going to hear this on tomorrow's cleanup, um, but Allison has a spectacular analogy that I'm not going to spoil on tonight's Q&A um, involving uh, the, the fact that these Republican efforts target Republicans as well, right? And so um, <laughs> oh, yeah. it, 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 it's so good, and I don't want to spoil it. Um, but but their thought process is, yeah, we don't care if we, uh, you know, wind up suppressing some Republican votes because we're suppressing more Democratic votes. Um, and that gives you an opportunity to build coalitions with people who care about having their voices. Does it, can you build a coalition with Uncle Frank? No, you, you can't. Um, but there are a lot of working class pro-Trump people who are like, yeah, you know what? Um, I'd kind of like to be able to vote on the weekend because, you know, I work second shift. And uh, uh, otherwise, like, voting in person on a Tuesday sucks, right? Yeah. Lots of opportunities like that. So um, I, I hear you. Don't don't put aside the despair uh, and and uh, and focus on the on the positive. And hopefully, we've given you some um, some concrete uh, options there. Stereo app is live social conversations, and they're awesome. And we want to talk directly with you, our listeners. So you can join our show, ask questions about news, politics, or anything, and you can share your experiences and opinions. We want to hear it all. So download now and join us live this week. Link to our show in the description, and join us over on the Stereo app.